from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. My name is Tony Sundermeyer, the senior pastor, and I want to thank you for watching today's broadcast. Now, I invite you to join in the worship of God. Please turn in your pew Bibles to Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 17 and 21 through 22, which is found on page 56 in the New Testament. Listen to God's word. As the people were filled with expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Messiah, John answered all of them by saying, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I is coming. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the shaft he will burn with unquenchable fire. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved. With you, I am well pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In addition to the text that Addie read for us, there's a text from Acts 8, which is also part of the lectionary, for the baptism of Jesus Sunday. Chapter 8, verses 26 through 40. Continue to listen to God's word to you and to me. Then an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Get up and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a wilderness road. So he got up and went. Now there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of the Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, in charge of her entire treasury. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning home, seated in his chariot. He was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over to this chariot and join it. So Philip ran up to it and, and heard him reading the prophet Isaiah. He asked him, do you understand what you're reading? He replied, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to get in and sit beside him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter and like a lamb silent before its shearer. So he does not open his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, About whom, may I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? Then Philip began to speak, and starting with this scripture, he proclaimed to him the good news about Jesus. As they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, here is water. What is to prevent me from being baptized? He commanded the chariot to stop. And both of them, Philip and the eunuch, went down into the water. And Philip baptized him. Then when they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. And as he was passing through that region, he proclaimed the good news to all the towns 
until he came to Caesarea. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you're able, I'd invite you to stand as we sing our middle hymn, Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound. Please join me in prayer. Lord, break open this ancient word afresh to us this day so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space this morning, even to be more like the one Jesus, the Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. My father-in-law, Jonathan, served two-plus decades as the senior pastor of the First Presbyterian Church of Moorestown, New Jersey. Uh, Moorestown is a bedroom community of, of Philadelphia, some 15 miles east of the Delaware River. It was settled by Quakers in the early and mid-1700s, and Money Magazine 
uh, named Moorestown, New Jersey, the best place to live in America in 2005. It's suburban, it's homogenous, it's expensive, and basically every citizen that lives there is well-educated and is a high achiever. And as you would expect, the First Presbyterian Church of Moorestown in its congregation reflects the demographic of the town. One of my father-in-law's strengths is his ability to connect with and embrace people uh, from all walks of life. What is more, he loves people right where they are. Do you know what I mean by that? We know of people who love us for who they want us to be. He loves us just where we are. And he has this ability to share the gospel in various contexts with a winsome and inclusive and generative spirit. And this way of ministering at times in his two-decade-plus ministry at this particular church got him in trouble because he would want to push the congregation's comfort zone. He would want to challenge them to understand that the good news of the gospel is for all people. And that the welcome and the embrace that the church receives by the very grace of God is the same embrace that the church should offer to everyone, to all people, regardless of what zip code they live in or if they look differently than church membership. A story that sort of captures the impulse of this happened several years ago as my in-laws and a couple friends of theirs were headed to a wedding reception in Philadelphia. My father-in-law dropped my mother-in-law off. He dropped uh, the wife of his friend off, and the two of them went to park, and then they would walk to the hotel. And so they started to walk to the hotel, and, and my father-in-law's friend uh, started talking about why he doesn't go to church. You'd be amazed at how many people feel so free to tell you why they don't go to your church. He also started to talk about why he was a person of very little faith. The conversation was interrupted, however, as they turned a corner and they literally ran into a man playing his saxophone. His clothes were tattered, his face looked worn. It captured what appeared to be a pain-filled life, a life that was hard, a life that hurt. And he looked tired. And yet he still played with precision and he played with passion. And the song he was playing was Amazing Grace. And my father-in-law insisted that they wait until the song was over, which they did. He complimented the man on his playing. He threw 10 bucks into his music case and they went on to the reception. And just as they got into the wedding reception, Jonathan's friend picked up the conversation where they had left off. He said, Jonathan, do you really want to know why I don't go to your church? He said, sure. He said, because people like that saxophone player aren't welcome there. If guys like that were in the Moorestown church, I'd go. So a few moments later, Jonathan slipped away, came back about a half an hour later, and he handed his friend 
a piece of paper. It had a note on it. And his friend said, what's this? As he opened it up. And Jonathan said, it's the name of the saxophone player. His name is Leroy. And his phone number is there. And the address of the street corner where you're going to pick him up tomorrow for church is there as well. He said, don't be late. Sure enough, on Sunday, this well-accomplished man of little faith and great skepticism showed up with Leroy, the saxophone player. And he sat next to him during the service. And Jonathan told the congregation the story, just like I'm telling you the story. And during the offertory, he invited Leroy to play. And Leroy came forward with his saxophone and he said, Thank you, Dr. Miller, for inviting me to church. I can't tell you the last time somebody invited me to church. And Leroy started to play Amazing Grace, and that single sax filled the sanctuary with the Spirit of God. It was breathtaking. So Jonathan invited Leroy to play the postlude as well. He played When the Saints Go Marching In. As an aside, I hope no saints go marching in later this afternoon. But it was a holy moment for that church. A moment they'll never forget. It was a fresh reminder of what the church should look like and how far and wide the embrace of the gospel truly extends to folks like Leroy, to skeptics, to pastors, to the whole congregation that showed up in worship that day. You know, I think of this story and stories like it when I think about how God powerfully works in the most ordinary of situations, in the most ordinary spaces of our lives. Sometimes hard, but yes, ordinary. When God shows up in a way to work. I also think of this story and stories like at any time I come across this text, this text rather, from the book of Acts, chapter 8. It's the story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Because this story from the writer Luke is all about the boundary-breaking, unexpected, and subversive work of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which annihilates any impediment, which destroys any barrier that prohibits anyone from receiving the embrace and power and work of God in their life. On paper, there were plenty of reasons that people might offer, plenty of things to list that Philip himself could have offered to this Ethiopian man when he asked, what is to prevent me from being baptized? What is to prevent me from receiving favor from God, from having God work in my life? His social status, his nationality, his religious experience, check, check, check. All of them could have been used to make the case against him. He doesn't look like us. He doesn't live in the right zip code. He doesn't attend church regularly. Check, check, check. But the Ethiopian asked Philip, what is to prevent me from being baptized? And Philip could have said, well, at least three things. Not to mention you're super rich and you're super educated and you won't quite fit into our simple living community. But that's not how the story goes, right? That's not how it goes. For we come to discover that there is, in fact, nothing 
to prevent this man from being baptized. There is no impediment. There is no barrier. There is no exclusion. Only embrace. And what does baptism signify if it doesn't signify the very welcome and acceptance of God? Baptism is the outward sign of an invisible grace and power that God brings into our life, that works in our life. It's a sign that echoes what was spoken about Jesus in his own baptism. When the words were proclaimed, this is my child, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. You know, church, we've had almost 100 baptisms in the last three years in our congregation. Almost 100 baptisms. And every time we come to the font, and every time we baptize a baby, or baptize a child, or baptize an adult, we encourage one another to remember our own baptism to remember the embrace, to remember the claim because it's core to our identity that friends, we are beloved sons and daughters of the living God and nothing in heaven or on earth or under the earth can ever undo that deep-seated truth. But there are times and there are seasons when that truth is severely tested. There are times when it feels as if we've fallen out of that embrace. There are times where we feel overwhelmed. And there are times where we feel powerless. There are times of change and there are times of uncertainty. Even times when we are unsure if God can be God for me and for us. If God is still at work. If we're still locked in God's embrace or are we slipping through God's fingers. If there's something that we're doing or if there's something that has been done to us that prevents us from receiving and living this core identity, this truth. Friends, this has been a challenging four to six weeks in the life of our church. And certainly in times of challenge, there are opportunities. And as I shared earlier, I'm confident, I'm optimistic, and I trust that God will be God. But the last several weeks in our congregation have required a lot from our church. Of course, we had this full and beautiful and wonderful and sacred season of Advent and and Christmas and Christmas Day, Christmas Eve services. We have the Epiphany Project. We're in the home stretch of the Epiphany Project, and it's created a spiritual energy in this church that is fresh and is new. We celebrate another year of ministry and we celebrate the the generosity of this congregation that once again has not only met our budget but has gone beyond in what God is calling us to do. But even in the midst of these last couple of weeks, we've had four significant deaths. We've had marriages end. We've had college students unsure of what's next, living in deep anxiety about their future. We continue to see how our poor and our vulnerable members and friends go unseen by so many in our city. And now, right now, the news of four, four key staff members who are following the Spirit into God's good future, we have all of this put together, and it's a lot. It's a lot. In the midst of all this, I was scheduled to visit one of our members. It's a man by the name of Jerry Arnold. Some of you know Jerry. He would sit 
right where Stephanie and Kevin are sitting right now. He's been a member for quite some time. He's regular, has been regular in worship. He's been regular in Sunday school up until recently. His health has declined to the point that it's created a situation where he now has to live in a group home where he has 24-hour care. And so I went to the car. I got in. I plugged in his address to my GPS, and it told me that his desk, that the house, that the destination was at least going to be a 45-minute drive south of the airport. It was like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. And I thought, how am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? Turned on the ignition, I started to drive, but I felt empty, I felt depleted, I felt overwhelmed, I felt burdened. I wanted to pray, I couldn't pray. Pulled up to Jerry's front door and and he met me, and his nurse met me. And I felt in that moment as I, I was climbing the steps to get in, I felt like there was so much preventing me from embracing the embrace of God. Have you ever felt like that? So one thing you need to know about Jerry is that Jerry loves gospel music. He loves it. In fact, he loves it so much that he writes gospel music. He's got a book of songs he has written gospel music. And the pastors who have visited him will tell you that you can't get out of his presence without him having sung a gospel song that he's composed. It just won't happen. In his younger days, he sang and led in church choirs. He was the president of the the Zion Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was the president of their, their male chorus. He loves to sing. And he was sharing with me on this most recent visit that the one thing that he regrets now that his health is declining, the one thing he regrets is that he never really got a chance to share his gift of music with the church. He then, out of his pocket, unfolded a sheet of paper and he said, Tony, I wrote a new song. I wrote it to the glory of God, but I wrote it for the whole church. For the whole church, for First Presbyterian Church. Do you want to hear it? I said, of course I want to hear it, but I would like for you to give me permission to record you just in case I'd be in worship on Sunday and I'd want to play that song for the whole church. The song's title is The Hand of God is at Work. Tim, would you play it? God is at work. That's the way it goes. The hand of God is at work and our going out and our coming in, the hand of God is at work. And in that moment, friends, as Jerry sang and the grace of God prevailed, I remembered my baptism. I remember who God is calling me to be and who God's calling us to be. And I remembered that there was nothing to prevent me from the grace of God. 
and the power of God working in my life. But there is a deeper truth that I discovered on the way home, that there's nothing that prevents God from being God. There's nothing that prevents God from empowering us, from sending us to be the people God wants us to be. And this is true for skeptics and infrequent church attenders. This is true for winsome pastors who mentor us in the way of Christ. This is true for street corner saxophone players. It's true for perfectly imperfect congregations. It's true for the poor and the vulnerable of our city. It's true for those uncertain about their future. It's true for those who are facing impossible endings. It's true for those who are on the precipice of a new beginning. It's true for our colleagues, Ann Henley and Ryan and Kevin and Jay, and it's true for you, and it's true for me, and it's true for the whole church. The hand of God is at work in our going out and our coming in. And nothing's going to stop God from working. Nothing. Nothing will prevent God's grace from coming. Nothing will hinder God from being God in your life, in the life of this church, and in the life of the world. May we receive God's future settled and nestled into this truth and live as if it is so. Amen.
Thank you for watching today's broadcast. For more video content, I'd encourage you to visit our website, firstpressatl.org. We'd love to see you here sometime at the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street to join us for worship. Thanks again for watching.